So we are going to be in Psalm 23. Psalm 23. <clears throat> For those of you that uh, know this passage, you can read along. Um, to give you a little backstory before we stand and, and read, read the word. Um, uh, I, was getting, I was getting like, hey, what are you teaching on? What are you teaching on? You know, because they want to make a graphic. They want to like push it. You know, that's, you know, that's something that we do here. We feel very strongly in that. And, um, you know, they were asking me like, you know, what are you teaching on? I'm like, <laughs> you know, Jesus, you know, I guess. Um, and, and so I'm like, uh, okay, a, Christ, a Christ-centered life, a Christ-centered life. And um, I, I was developing a sermon for all of you. I was praying over it. I was, I was struggling over it. Um, for those of you that, you know, uh, have not preached before, you know, Pastor Rob can attest, it's a very grueling, very grueling process because you go through the refiner's fire with the Lord. Um, you really, you know, it, he's not gentle with the preacher. Um, you know, he, he isn't, he really isn't. Uh, he takes them through sifting and sifting and sifting. And um, in, in the process of preparing the sermon, guys, uh, I, I, I got very bitter and frustrated with the Lord. Got very bitter and very frustrated with God, and because I was so passionate about the subject I wanted to preach on, so incredibly passionate. Um, my my passion for the Lord has been increasing, but what God has been showing me is that as my passion has been increasing, so has my bitterness. My passion for the Lord has been increasing, and so has my bitterness towards situations around me. It's been, it's been a struggle of my heart, and I was feeling the weight of it as I was preparing this sermon. And, and, and God simply told me to throw it away. And he said, come spend time with me. Come be with me. And uh, I, I got a text from my fiance Megan, and you know, I, I just said, hey, pray for me. And she says, hey, as, as long as you are preaching from what the Holy Spirit has told you, and not from you trying to make any sort of point, then it's going to be fine. And so I just spent some time with the Lord, and I went through Psalm 23. And so that's what we're going to go through, right? Psalm 23. So let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Psalm 23. If you would desire, it's a very famous psalm, perhaps one of the most famous passages in Scripture, besides John 3.16. You may read along, but we're going to go through uh, verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6. It reads, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that your word and your spirit um, would prevail this morning. Uh, A lot of us come to church for different reasons. Some of us, we were dragged here by our relatives. Uh, A few of us are, are just broken and seeking rest. Some do it out of habit. Some do it out of obligation. Some do it out of adoration or just a desire to worship you and grow closer to you. For whatever reason any of us may be here this morning, Father, I pray that we'd be captivated by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
that your word would prevail in our hearts, God, that whatever is said of me would be forgotten, but whatever is said of you, God, that we would grasp onto and cling onto for all of eternity. Jesus, we pray that your name would be higher than our own names this morning. Lord, uh, that we, we tend to look at Scripture, we tend to listen to sermons through the lens of our own worldview. I pray that we would put that to rest and we'd simply look soberly at your passage this morning. We, uh, we desire you, Lord. And I just pray that you would uh, wake us up, Lord, to who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Have a seat. So the way we view God, the way we view God, you know, we all, we all view God in different ways. Um, there's some staggering statistics out there. There's some really staggering statistics that I was reading um, about, uh, let's say it, it's about 71.1%, uh, 71.1% um, of America, the United States, is, uh, professes to be Christian. 71.1% of the United States claims to be Christian. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's a rounded number. Um, and about 50.2% of those believe that the Bible is the word of God. So about 50% of people that profess to be Christian believe that the Bible is actually the word of God. And about 2% of those actually believe uh, only 2% of that 70.1% believe that evangelism is necessary. And so we all view God in different ways. And our worldview kind of shapes our actions. Our worldview shapes our actions. You see, if you view God as absent or a myth, you are the highest authority in your life, aren't you? If God is absent from your life, if God is a myth, or if his word is not authoritative, then you are the highest authority in your life. Therefore, your opinion of yourself is based on what you do, your social circle, um, what you wear, how you act, who you're with, how much money you make, what your profession is, etc. You get to define yourself. If God is not the highest authority, then you get to define who you are, right? You get to base your identity off of whatever you decide, your profession, your income, etc., if you view God as militant or demanding, as some do, that he is a military commander before a loving father. If you believe that he is militant and he loves you only based on how many times you go to church or how you don't cuss or uh, whatever, then you tend to view yourself as either better or worse compared to what other people do and do not do. If you view God as a militant God, as a... Uh, as a God who sets laws in place in order to compare you to other people, then you will ultimately define yourself based off of what you do or do not do. I've, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in my life who tend to identify themselves based off the sins that they abstain from and not necessarily the relationship they have to God. We, you know, uh, some of you grew up in Sunday school where all it was in Sunday school was telling you how to behave, right? And not telling you how Jesus is, right? Uh, we, we grow up maybe in Sunday school, all right, here's how to be a good person, here's how to be moral, here's how to behave, here's how to respect your parents, but nobody's ever told, here's how much Jesus loves you, right? 
And so we tend to base then our opinion of ourselves based on what we do or do not do. If you feel, if you view God, which is the prevailing, I would say, opinion in California as some hippie with no boundaries, right? He loves you no matter what. And he's just loosey goosey, right? Go with the flow. It's all good, man. Long flowing hair, Abercrombie model Jesus, right? That we see in pictures, right? The blonde hair, blue eyes, Jesus, right? If we view God as, as just someone who has no boundaries, doesn't care what you do, then you will view yourself as always right. Because there is no defined right or wrong. Thus you will, in your arrogance, you will be unrepentant of your sin, unbroken of your sin. How you view God, how you view God, dictates, dictates what you do and how you identify yourself. Whether you're an atheist, agnostic, or a Christian, how you view God dictates how you progress in life, your life choices. That is why in Scripture, it emphasizes so much that knowing God is far more important than being a good person. Scripture continually emphasizes that knowing God is far more important than keeping a set of law. Because healing your view of God and your view will ultimately heal your view of yourself. Restoring your view of who God is will heal your view of yourself. I'll explain it using John chapter 15. If you want to turn there, you can turn to John chapter 15. You don't have to, I'll I'll read it to you as well. In John 15, verse 9, it says this, As the Father loved me, this is Jesus speaking, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, abide in his love. So when we stop there, we think, okay, if I love Jesus, I will obey him. But the love comes first, doesn't it? The loving Christ comes first. If you love me, you will obey me. It says in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be fill, filled. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you these things I command you, that you love one another. That you love one another. Knowing Jesus flows into a greater life There is a profound purpose in understanding who God is in order to live the life that God desires. Love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. We want, you know, sometimes, guys, I I, I feel like I'm this way. I want to know the lifestyle of God. I want to know what God wants. I want to know his commands. I want to know the marching orders, right? I want to know the application for the sermon so I could just check out, right? 
I want to know what to do. I want to know what to do. Give me a list because I'm an American, right? I will follow orders. I will get it done, right? I will take shortcuts. I will do what needs to be done. I want to know the lifestyle God wants so that I can emulate it. But oftentimes, I want to know the lifestyle God wants before I even want to know God himself. Know him personally. Some of us have spent our entire Christian lives just knowing exactly what God wants, but not having an intimate relationship with him. Now, King David, we remember King David, right? The one who wrote this psalm. He had a good relationship with God, did he not? I mean, David knew God, right? David knew God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Not meaning the Lord is my shepherd and I don't want him, right? It says the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall want for nothing. God is my shepherd. He is in my presence. It says that he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. Guys, so, so it, it, it's not just that the path, David's path was affected by the Lord. His soul was affected by the Lord. So, so yeah, our, our steps need to be according to righteousness. Our steps need to be in tandem with what God wants and desires and commands us. But is he restoring our soul, who we are, right? He leads me beside still waters. Now, that doesn't sound like work to me, right? That doesn't sound like labor to me. That doesn't sound like him picking up himself and just trying to power through to me. It sounds like that he is being carried by his wonderful shepherd beside still waters into green pastures. And his soul is being restored. He knew God. There was a profound intimacy between David and God. There was this friendship and trust that I think we, we all ultimately desire with God, whether we explicitly say it or not. I think our souls, they, they cry out to be intimate with our shepherd. Because we're sheep, right? We're sheep. You know, a shepherd wasn't necessarily super high calling back then, right? Right? Uh, shepherds weren't necessarily like, you know, paid bank, you know? Uh, shepherds weren't necessarily uh, admired in society. So why would God associate himself with the role of shepherd? Well, it's because the people he loves are like sheep, right? I'll never forget when I was in Iowa just watching a sheep walk into an electric fence, blah, you know? <laughs> And then like watching it like step back and then watching it step into the electric fence again, you know, just noticing like that is, that is what a sheep does. That's, isn't that what we do as people? Isn't that like what sin is, right? We get hurt by sin. We get damaged by sin. And then we like shake it off and like, let's try again. <laughs> and we'll go again. We are sheep. We are sheep. That is why God associates himself with the heart of a shepherd. And guys, you know, have you seen sheep? They have these huge bodies and legs like that big, right? They have these huge fluffy bodies that are white, so targets for every predator that ever lived, right? And then they got these little legs and tiny brains, right? And so, and so you, have, you have to like put yourself, put yourself in the place of a sheep. Why would a sheep not be stressed out, right? 
knowing that there are wolves, knowing that there's like logs they have to walk over, right? Like just, just standing straight up for a sheep is phenomenal, right? And so why would a sheep not be afraid? You know, a, a sheep has every single reason to be scared. A sheep has every reason to be anxious and filled with fear. And apart from a shepherd, a sheep should be afraid. Apart from a shepherd, a sheep should be stressed out. Apart from a shepherd, a a, a sheep should be worrying about his next paycheck, about the job, about the relationship. Without the shepherd, the the sheep should be afraid. But he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I, I need nothing. He leads me. Yeah, he makes me to lie down in green pastures, meaning he, he just laid down. Stop stressing out. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesakes. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which for a sheep is everywhere, <laughs> right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That, for a sheep, that is every single area it goes into. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He had such deep trust in God, David, that he was able to write, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And now he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Meaning, even in the presence of danger and death in my enemies. And enemies, guys, just place it wherever you want. Maybe it is a person, but maybe it's a situation in your life that's combating you. I tend to not be at odds necessarily with people, but more so situations. And he says that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Meaning, I can sit and eat and be comfortable in the presence of my enemies. In the the presence of the valley of the shadow of death. I don't need to fear. I don't need to have anxiety. For you are with me. David is basically saying, even when I'm surrounded by enemies and nobody's on my side, you are my provider and I'm full in you. I'm full in who you are. David's trust in something, in God is something that any Christian wants, right? It's something that I desire. That trust to be in the midst of an anxious situation, that trust in the midst of financial uh, struggles, in the midst of a divorce for some of you, in the midst of familial issues with some of you, in the midst of depression, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of just being broken by someone you loved. In the midst of those terrible memories that you have from childhood or when you were younger. In the midst of these things, I shall fear nothing. Guys, and his fruitfulness in the midst of that is something we should desire too, right? So it begs the question, looking at this, it begs the question, what does it mean to be Christ-centered? What does it mean, as David was, to look on to Jesus, the good shepherd, right? And Jesus defining himself, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, knowing our Old Testament vernacular, Jesus is essentially saying, I am God. I am God. 
And so when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, what does it even mean to be centered and, and, and focused on the shepherd, on Christ? So that when, and no matter what situation we find ourselves in, we can say, I am satisfied. My soul is restored just because you're around. What does it mean to be Christ-centered? What does it mean to live a Christ-centered life? Does it mean that we need to stop sinning to live a Christ-centered life? Should we stop sinning? Yes. Yes. Will we ever? No. Those in Scripture with the greatest anointing by God were murderers and liars. Look at Moses and David being the two biggest ones. Both murderers and both liars. Does it mean that we need to serve the church more, bring more people to Jesus? No, it says in Isaiah 64 that our good works are still just filthy rags before God. That's, that's not what it means to be living a Christ-centered life, though we should be doing those things, amen? Does it mean that I need to give up all my possessions and live in poverty to be closer to God, as some people would suggest? If that is what you're called to, absolutely. But that's not necessarily what it means to live a Christ-centered life because we see that both rich and poor have been used mightily for the kingdom of God, right? Does it mean that I need to read my Bible more and pray more and tithe more? Should you do those things? Absolutely. But it doesn't make you Christ-centered. It doesn't make you good with God. It says in Psalm 51 uh, that God is not pleased with sacrifices of time or money or offerings and resources just because you think he's going to like it. Does Christ-centered mean that I need to become a pastor and work at a church, right? Uh, Aren't those the anointed ones? Aren't those the Christ-centered ones? I could tell you from personal experience, no, absolutely not. I truly believe that God puts the most messed up individuals up here, right? Listen again to the words David uses in verse 5. He says, you... Prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In my studies of Psalms, I've come to know that one thing is, is certain. That every single psalm, every single psalm you can see is a recognition that God is 100% in control. It is the recognition that God is in control, and then it's a thanksgiving for the work that he has done, is doing, or is going to do. That's what Psalms is. It's just saying, Lord, you are in control, and I'm either going to praise you for what you have done, what you are doing, or what you're going to do. Either way, I have something to praise, right? Being anointed, guys, is, 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 it's not measured, God does not measure anointing on how much you give to God. God does not measure success or Christ-centeredness based on how much you have given of yourself, your time, or your resources. How much scripture you may have memorized. How much times you may have gone to church. God does not measure anointing that way. He does not measure it that way. He measures it based on what God has done for you. So so your anointing, your status with God is not contingent on what you have given him, rather on what you have received from him. What you have received from him. 
And what have we received but the full measure of God's grace and mercy on the cross? What have we received but the love that is able to say, I will forget about my son and crucify him so that I may be in an intimate relationship with you? What have we received but as it says in Ephesians 1, all the heavenly gifts that God could ever muster, he has given to you through his Holy Spirit. You are not measured by on what you have sacrificed or given to God. Rather, he has sacrificed and given everything to you. And that is what identifies you. That is what defines you. On the full weight of the grace of the cross, he has given you everything. So to be anointed is not measured by how much you give, but on how much you receive. It's not about stepping out into the mission field. It's about stepping into God's presence and allowing him to press you into the mission field. I've said this before. I think I say this almost every single time I teach with you guys is that the word Christian is rarely found in the Bible, only about twice. And it's usually used as a term that other people identify us as. We actually aren't supposed to really identify, say, oh, I'm Christian. You know, that, that, that means something very specific for us since the way our culture has identified us because it's an easy way of remembering. But the Bible actually says that you are in Christ. That is our label, is in Christ. Meaning that, that we, Christian means Christ follower, right? Or little Christ means that we mimic him, right? And that's what the world should call us, right? Because we should look like Christ, amen? But our identity is not necessarily contingent on how well, as stumbling sheep, we follow Christ. But that Christ has said, you are now a part of who I am. You are mine. You are in Christ. If we identify ourselves as Christian Christ followers, little Christ, then the second we, we stop maybe acting like Christ for a second, we'll think, oh, I'm not a Christian. Jesus, I haven't identified you as a Christian. I've identified you as in Christ. Meaning that what's true of him is true of you because of the sacrifice he's made. You are in Christ, child. Do not fear. Do not be anxious. For what is true of my son is now true of you. You wear his righteousness. He has worn your wickedness so that you might wear his righteousness. In Psalm 16, verse 5 through 6, it says, this is one of my favorite scriptures ever. It says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. It says that you are my chosen portion, right? And my cup, meaning that you are the substance of my blessing and you are also the vessel that holds my blessing, Right? So not only are you the awesome soup, right? But you are the bowl that holds my soup, right? That's essentially what it is, right? That you are not only what gives me sustenance and blessing, but you are also the one in, who holds it. Meaning you don't just pour it out on me. You are the vessel that I can cling to. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance in you. In Psalm 21, verse 1 through 7, it says this, The king, 
who is David, shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. You have, you have met him with blessings of goodness, and you have set a crown of pure gold upon his head. Right? And so I look at passages like this, and I look at scriptures like this, and I'm like, why is he so lucky? Right? You know, it says, right, like, I want my heart's desire. You know, why does this guy get his heart's desire? You know, I, I want blessings of goodness. Why don't I get that? Right? And, and so the, it begs the question, like, why the heck is this king so spoiled? Right? Like, have you noticed, like, have you ever read the Bible and like, why do they get that? You know? Why do they get that? I don't. Right? Am I exempt? Right? From the blessings of God? Like, why, why do they have him talking to him? Right? Why do they have God, like, talking straight into their lives? Why do they have all these victories over sickness and illness? Why are they so lucky? Why does, why does this king get the desire of his heart? Why does he get all the blessings of goodness? Why, why does he get it? And I'm, I'm here, bitter, anxious, sick. Why do I get it? Why, why is he so lucky? It says in verse 4, He asks life from you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever, his glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him, for you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence, for the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of his most high, he shall not be moved. Why does the king, in this passage, get everything he wants from God? It doesn't seem fair. The answer is, is that there's an intimacy between him and God. Meaning, why does he get the desires of his heart? Well, the desires of his heart are equal to the desires of God's heart. And God's always going to get what he wants, right? And so this guy always gets what he wants. Right? It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That mean, that doesn't mean that, oh, well, if I'm good and I, 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 I praise him and I go to church, then I'm going to get whatever I want. No, it, it means delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Meaning, God will create your desires. He's going to give you new desires. It's not that he's going to give you whatever he, you want. He's going to give you new desires for new things, the things that God wants. That's what it means. So no more given, there's not a give and take relationship between God. Well, I'm going to give God this and he'll give this back to me, right? It's not the way God operates, right? There's, there's no exchange of goods and services between us and God. We need to get that out of our heads. That God gets his way every time. And, and, and this king right here, he, he gets the blessing. He gets everything he wants because he trusts in the Lord. And his only real delight, it says right here, is in the presence of God. The answer is that there's an intimacy between him and God. The relationship is founded upon two things. God's salvation that he offers and the reception of God's salvation and the enjoyment of it. That's the relationship that we see here. And this all may sound super abstract, right? right? It, it, it might, might all sound, okay, I, I just need to desire God more. Do I need to, like, pray more? 
<laughs> Do I need to read my Bible more? You know, because automatically in these sorts of things, we're like, okay, so I want more intimacy with God, so what do I do? I know that's kind of counter, you know, that's contradicting what you just said. It's not about doing anything, but what do I do to have more intim- intimacy with God, right? What do I do? The application here is in Mark chapter 3. Once again, you can turn there, but I'll read it for you. In Mark chapter 3, verse 13, is when Jesus is calling his disciples, right? And I, I guess we, we can call the disciples the, mo- the mo- probably pretty privileged, right? Right? I mean, they get to walk and talk and be with Jesus, yeah? That's pretty awesome. They get to be with Jesus in ways that we wish we could. But it's interesting how, how Jesus calls them. Right? Because we, we, we see that the apostles, right, the 12 apostles, they were the ones that shook the entire world. Right? They shook the world, guys. Like, uh, they, they, they changed the, the, whole, the entire course of history. Obviously, that was Jesus and the Holy Spirit working through them. But through these 12 men, we're here. Right? We're here at Godspeed Calvary Chapel because of 12 dudes that were either like fishermen or outlaws. Right? They were either fishermen, outlaw, outlaws, dirty politicians, right? They, they were all, all sorts of, like, weird dudes, right? All of them of which were under the age of 30, right? And, and, and so it's just interesting how, how, how God, like, did that, right? I, I, always, I, I tell the youth kids, like, the first youth group was this, right? Like, the first ever youth group was Jesus and his 12 apostles. Like, a lot of them were teenagers, and it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 13, it says, And he went on to the mountain. We learn in Luke that he prayed for a really long time. There's all these crowds that like, coming up to him and wanting healing and wanting teaching and wanting and wanting and wanting and want, just taking. The crowd always takes, guys. The minority gives. The crowd takes. Okay? And it says, And he went up on the mountain. And in Luke, we learn that he prayed. And to him, and he called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him, and he appointed the twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have power to heal sickness and cast out demons. And then we see he called Simon, who he gave the name Peter, James, and John, who were both very young, um, the brother of James, uh, who he gave the name Sons of Thunder, just because they were always asking for the wrath of God to come. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, tax collector, who was involved. He was our equivalent to a dirty politician. You know, that's why people hated the tax collectors. Thomas, um, who was, uh, he, he's called Thomas the Zealot, right? Um, or, sorry, yeah, that, was, that was another one. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Judas Iscariot. A couple of these guys were assassins. Right? When it says that there's the name Zealot, Zealot were called dagger men. They were people that would assassinate Roman officials. Right? And so the, these are the types of people that Jesus chose. Fishermen, tax collectors, nobodies, somebodies. They just weren't good somebodies. Right? I'll close here. Guys, there's three different types of people that go to church. There's three different types of people. The most, the majority of people that go to church, the majority that you'll find in a church is the crowd. We have these people in the Old Testament, right? They're called the multitude. 
And 99% of the time, the multitude is described as people that are thronging towards Jesus. In one point, point later on in Mark chapter 3, it says that Jesus had to get away from them because he was afraid that they were going to crush him. Right? Not because they were angry at him, but because they all wanted to take something from him. Right? The crowd always wanted to take from him. The majority always just wanted to come and consume They wanted to either consume the teaching, or they needed money, or they needed healing, or they needed whatever they needed. They needed attention. That was the majority of people that followed Jesus. There was thousands and thousands and thousands of people that followed Jesus. Most of them, 99% of them, were the crowd that just wanted something. They just wanted to take and consume. Those are the types of people that the most people that you'll find in church and in the American church as well. The second largest group was not even the disciples. You know that? The second largest group wasn't even the disciples. The second largest group, there were hundreds of them, was the Pharisees. We always think the Pharisees as like three or four, like, you know, dudes that are just all, you know, like look like Disney Channel villains, right? Like... You know, you picture them with, like, capes and, like, weird goatees and, you know, ah, right? But there were hundreds of them. They were the religious leaders, right? There were hundreds of Pharisees, and they followed Jesus. They attended his synagogue services. They followed him. They were there. They were part of the multitude. They were there. And they were all about self-righteousness and judgment, not about the mission of God. And the vast minority, the very minority, the last and the third group of people that you'll find in church, the minority usually, was the disciples. 70 to 12. 70 people Jesus would send out and do ministry. Only 12 of them at the end of the day were there. Well, 11 really. You count Judas, right? The disciples were the minority. We live in a world where we think that numbers equal power. We see in uh, Judges chapter 7 when God is calling Gideon to create an army to defend the people of Israel. There was over 20,000 soldiers that Gideon had, had gotten. There's thousands of soldiers that Gideon had mustered for God's army. And God said, it's too many. We never think that, that, that many people would ever be a hindrance to the kingdom of God. But God says, there's too many people. And so Gideon cut them in half. 10,000, right? There's over 200,000 soldiers that they were going to face. And he says, there's still too many. So he dwindles it down more to 1,000. He still says, too many. Then he dwindles it down to 300 men. He says, perfect. 300 versus 200,000 dig it, right? Twelve men. Twelve men against the entire world. And we're here at Godspeed Calvary Chapel because of those twelve men. America is 71.1% Christian because of those twelve men. They had no idea America even existed. One third of the entire world professes to be Christian. That's because of 12 men that were untrained, unskilled, 
Nobody would ever think that they could do anything, and they rocked the entire history of the world. Why? It says, and the key is right here, that he called them to him that they might be with him. Before they went out to preach, before they went out to heal the sick, before they went out to do anything, they were with him, camping with him, eating with him, talking with him, praying with him, just being next to Jesus. Just being next to him. And so I, 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 want, to, I want to tell you, it's, it's, just, it's this interesting thing that ministry, effectiveness in your community, in your family, whatever context you desire God to be glorified, will be, uh, it, it will be unfruitful without being intimate with Jesus. Opening up your Bible and, and not saying, all right, got to get my devotion done for today, but saying, Lord, what, what do you have of me? What in here can I learn about who you are, who your character is? Not, not, all right, let me find a scripture so I could tell that person about, no, no, God, I just want to be with you. I just want to pray with you. I just want to spend time with you. I just want to take a walk with you. Even if it's just for 30 minutes in a day because you have kids and you have two jobs and you have all these things. Even if it's just very first thing in the morning or very last thing before you go to bed. Just spending some time with Jesus. Your fruitfulness will increase. Your love for people will increase. Jesus says, love others as I have loved you. So how, brothers and sisters, will we ever be able to love this world that is dying if we have not first received the comforting love of our shepherd, Jesus. Don't spend time with him just to simply memorize the scripture or to recite to somebody else or to have a fruitful conversation, but just to be with him. Just to be with him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, Paul is, is telling the Corinthian church, he's like, I know I'm telling you a lot about Jesus right now and all that I do for Jesus, but it's, it's not because I, I, I want to boast to you guys. I don't want you guys to think I'm bragging. I want you guys to just know. I want you guys to know that, that, that we love Jesus, essentially, is what he's saying. We love Jesus, and I, I want you guys to have a defense for those that think that it's all about a fruitful ministry, not about a sincere heart, Right? That it's all about fruitfulness and not about faithfulness to be with Jesus. Amen? We think that humility and Christ-centeredness means living quietly or, or, or giving things up or knowing this passage or this passage. But I think being able, I think being Christ-centered, being Christ-centered, being truly humble, guys, means that you can trace the things you say and the decisions you make back to an intimate guiding by your shepherd, Jesus. Your business decisions, your decisions on how you treat your children and your spouse, the way, the way you approach going to church, the way you approach your hobbies, the way you approach your conversations with people, Want to know how they're Christ-centered? Want to know how to live a Christ-centered life? Can you trace every decision you make, everything you say, back to a time where, where Jesus has been guiding you 
intimately. Where what you do is an outflow of who you are with him. Right? And so the application, guys, do you know what? It's different for all of you. It's different for all of you. Spend time with Jesus. Spend time with him. Imagine how good your marriage would be if you only talked to your spouse on Sunday. Right? Some of you need to go home and talk to your spouse. (laughs) But if we are in a love relationship with Christ and that he has called us to change the world as he did the 12 apostles, then we need to follow suit by spending time with him, being with him. And so let this just be another charge, as you guys already know, to be with your Savior and just enjoy him not with any ulterior motive, but to draw closer to him. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. We're going to pray. Father, we, uh, we are grateful for who you are. Lord, we are... Um... Lord, I, I, I know that my passion may increase, but sometimes my intimacy decreases, and I feel like that's where bitterness comes from. That's where heartache comes from, Father. And I just pray, God, that uh, this morning as we, as we worship, Lord, as we end with these last few songs, God, that we would, that we would increase in intimacy with you. God, that we, we wouldn't just be reciting words that we've been hearing forever, Lord, but rather that we would look at them and we would see, God, oh, this is true. This is true that we look at these words and be like, this is me spending time with Jesus, the shepherd of my soul. And so, Father, I, I pray that our life decisions, I pray that the way, way we treat one another, the way that we speak to one another would be simply an outflow of the way you speak to us, the way you treat us, Jesus. Father, I- I- increase in us this desire to be passionately in love with you. The Christianity, Lord, would be put aside and that we would simply call ourselves in Christ. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.